Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. Today, we bring you a conversation between Dr. Erica Ramirez and Dr. Jonathan Calvillo as a follow-up to their first episode regarding Latinx voters. For more information about today's episode, please visit us at htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to another episode of HTI's Open Plaza. I'm Jonathan Calvillo, Assistant Professor of Sociology of Religion at Boston University School of Theology. And I'm here with Erica Ramirez, who will introduce herself. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm so happy to be in conversation with you today. I am Erica Ramirez. I am Director of Applied Research at Auburn Seminary in New York City. Um, I am a sociologist by training, and I am a Texan uh, originally from San Antonio, and I'm excited to be um, in the studio today with you, Jonathan, talking about uh, the election outcomes, a topic we took up a few weeks ago before the election um, when we were sort of prognosticating, we were sort of trying to figure out what we thought was going to happen um, with Latinos in this election we just had in November. How have you been? How have I been? Well, uh, I've been okay, you could say. I mean, it's been quite a roller coaster ride post election. And so, in some ways, I am happy to be here for the purposes of not only analyzing, but also. Uh, reflecting on for my own <laughs> personal sanity, I guess you could say, but um, definitely looking forward to having this conversation and um, talking through what, what both of us have been observing, what we've been hearing, uh, and maybe what we think is the way forward for our communities. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so Jonathan, I want to get right to it. Um, one reason I'm glad we're back in the in this conversation and the Zoom conversation is because in many ways, I think we could count our former podcast in a win. I'm going to just go ahead and declare it. We were right. Um, <laughs> I want to name ways that election results have proven our um, our predictions correct. Number one, I, I think we definitely introduced the idea that... Um, Latinx voters were not necessarily going to vote according to what I said at the time was a predominantly um, racialized narrative in the press, the idea that um, the Republicans are the party of white people and Democrats are the party of um, a multi-ethnic or multiracial, multicultural coalition against uh, a problem problematic whiteness-centered party of Republicans. Okay, so that was a, a narrative that I saw guiding election sensibilities. And I remember both of us said, we were not so sure that uh, Latinx voters were going to actually fulfill that bifurcation narrative, that idea that if you are Latinx, that you are going to vote Democrat. Um, everything that we've seen in exit polling says, actually, that turned out to be the truth. Um, more 
Latinx voters went for Trump this time than last time. So I'd like to give you a little bit of a virtual high five. Yeah. <laughs> virtual high five. We resisted that. Uh, we resisted that uninformed narrative. And I'm. I guess I'd like to ask you. Um, it it feels good to be happy, but uh, it feels good to be right. But this obviously isn't um, an easy thing to feel excited about being right about. Am I right? Yeah, I, I'm on board with that. In other words, it's not something that I wanted to be right about. It's not something that um, I was hoping to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think what the, the way you described it uh, is really quite accurate um, in terms of the expectation that perhaps uh, the Latino population will vote as this, um, you know, racialized block. You know, uh, of course, uh, we think more as a pan-ethnic group, but even then, you know, is it really a voting block? So people have been problematizing that. Um, people have been problematizing also, and when I say people, I, I think we could say maybe journalists, but also on social media. Um, one of the phrases I keep hearing is uh, Latinos are not a monolith, mm-hmm, exactly. right? You know, that word monolith, I keep hearing that word, like some, all of a sudden that word. Super popular. Um, yeah, it's so popular, right? And and I think it's important, and I think that's an important assertion, and I've been seeing a lot of articles and, 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 and pieces coming out around that, that idea, Latinos are not a monolith. But I also wonder in what ways there are certain collectivities within the Latino population that might give us uh, some handles on what happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, yes, I agree. We're not a monolith, but I also think we have to consider what are some of the ways that there are maybe certain patterns within the community that can help raise our awareness as to, um, you know, what motivates people to vote and um, and also um, how do people see themselves? Like who do they see themselves connected to? You mm-hmm. know, things like that. Um, right. so, so yes, the whole not a monolith question I think is good, but but I also think there are some points of connection that we need to acknowledge. I wanna give you a piece of acknowledgement too, or um, I wanna acknowledge something you were super right about, um, which is that some of the idea that that Latinx voters would be allergic to Donald Trump is premised on the idea that they see themselves as an immigrant people. And you really took that idea through the ringer last time and I did some metaphysical spe- uh, speculation about the metaphysics of believing people will p- forever see themselves as immigrants, mm-hmm. but even into the third generation, fourth generation, that they would uh, maintain that that sense of identity marker that you know, that uh, immigrant people. And I wanted to point to an article um, in Politico by an author named Jack Herrera, who took who interviewed a lot of uh, voters in deep South Texas, right? And some of them literally said, I don't see myself as an immigrant. So the name of the article was Trump didn't win the Latino vote in Texas. He won the Tejano vote 
Um, so I just wanted to to give you tip of the hat. You called it um, the idea that Latinx voters were going to over-identify with the anti-immigrant, like the immigrant, the plight of the immigrant, even like the treatment of the immigrant in Donald Trump's rhetoric. That actually doesn't um, find traction in certain parts of Texas, at least. I really found that piece in Politico about Texas persuasive. And I've said it, I think I said at the beginning of this podcast, I am a Texan. I have been, um, I was raised in San Antonio and um, at least a fourth, fourth generation, I think in San Antonio. Um, so it's been a very long um, experience for my family, for myself in Texas, everything about what I knew about the, the setting of Texas and its sensibilities totally coheres with what I read in the Politico piece. There is just not that same idea there that Latinx peoples are an immigrant people. Way to go, you. Um, but I did think it was really interesting that the article helped us to move forward, tick forward, because when it said, you know, Trump didn't win the Latino vote in Texas, he won the Tejano vote. I, I think now we start getting past just the simplistic monolith language about what what Latinx voters are not, right? They're not a monolith, into yeah. what they might more readily be recognizable as. Tejanos, mm -hmm. Chicanos, Cubanos, right? Like, yeah. it's not that suddenly every Latinx voter is an individual voter, unknowable in terms of the markers of identification that are suddenly important to this person. But in fact, um, you could get a lot further by thinking in terms of region and the history of the region. Last time we talked a little bit about like, for instance, what it means to be from California. There's a strong labor movement history there. And so that kind of shapes the culture of Chicana Californian identity. Yeah, I think so. I think that there is a lot, a lot to unpack there. And we touched on it briefly last time. And I think there's a lot more. And and part of it, you know, to confess that um both of you and I are of um oh, yes. Mexican origin, uh it, it, you know, in some way, shape, or form, um, generationally or whatnot. But um the conversation is much broader than just people of Mexican origin, of course. And so I think, you know, our conversation can easily veer into that uh, sort of sector, region, group. Uh, but there are some really fascinating things going on. Like you met, you named Cubanos, for example, um, which we have to acknowledge, you know, that's an important conversation. Um, but then even when you look, you know, a lot of the conversation about Florida, tends to focus on Cubanos. Um, and yet we see a very different pattern with Puerto Ricans mm -hmm. in the same region mm -hmm. as compared to the Cubanos in that region. So um, I think it speaks to what you've what you've said that there are certain there are certain collectivities in those areas. Um, but we have to sort of take the lens a little bit closer and see, so we don't make the, I think it's important not to make the assumption that, you know, here's this pan-ethnic collectivity in that region. So, so region is one part of it, mm -hmm. right? And I agree with you, but even in a particular region, 
right? There's going to be these, you know, folks moving in different directions. And I think the Florida case is a great example of that. So when people talk about Latinos in Florida, they sometimes want to uh, generalize based on the Cuban example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and of course, I know plenty of Cubans that say, wait, 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 you know, I, you know, that's not me. I, you know, I voted differently. I didn't right. support Trump. Right. Um, so of course, you know, there's, there, there are going to be different groups, even within the national origin group. Um, but if, if I may, uh, I also want to, um, I wouldn't say push back, but maybe offer even a different nuance as well along those lines. Um, which is that there are also certain cross-cutting ties, um, and meaning ties across national origin groups or something like that, that are also significant. So again, looking at the Florida example, one of the stories that's been emerging is um, that voters were really energized. There, there was a, a certain group of voters that were really energized by these like anti-socialism messages. Mm, yes. That there was a lot of messaging going on. And so, yes, Cubans were a big part of that, that group that was energized, Cuban-Americans energized by um, that, that form of, you could say, uh, you know, marketing. Um, but there are other emerging populations that also seem to gravitate towards that message. So you have now in Southern Florida, uh, you know, Venezuelans, for example, and, um, and, and, and other groups that, um, that may have identified with that particular message. So, so there are ways in which there are these like regional Latinidades that, that right. might emerge. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. And I love what you're saying here because those kinds of sensibilities actually help to relativize Latinidades in Florida, for instance, with those in California, which last time we identified, like, why would some Chicano voters maybe be interested? We noted, like, Bernie Sanders had received a lot of dollars. I think the most Latin, Latinx dollars this this election season went to Bernie Sanders. So he's the was the best funded candidate by Latinx voters, right? So when you think about Floridian Latinx voters and their their real antipathy for socialism, but you've got Californian voters who are in a very different and and for good reason they're in a very different frame of mind. I think then if I could say to you, I would round out this kind of this is not an endlessly nuanced picture, but now we're doing sort of three centers of gravity. Texan voters, I would expect many of them to be anti-socialist. Does that make sense? So I was gonna um, ask, I was gonna yeah, ask you were gonna ask me. Yeah. So there's a I I not I would want to be careful. I mean, more more work would obviously need to be done here. But I would say, you know, I I I hedge a little bit because I know Hispanic Texan Protestant voters are gonna be against any kind of socialist, any kind of socialist themes. But I want to leave the door open a little bit to a very active and bigger contingency of Latinx Catholic voters in Texas who could be less allergic to socialist themes than are the Protestants. 
And that would be an interesting question that I, of course, isn't yet showing up in some of this new and really to my mind, the state of the art of covering Latinx voting trends. We've seen a lot more visibility in the press. And in a little bit, we're gonna talk about uh, Public Religion Research Institute and their breakdown of Latinx voters, I think is really marvelous. So I, but if I could have asked for more, I guess I would ask this question around like socialism sensibilities in different regions and whether pro or against with the caveat that I know that no socialists, no, no actual socialism was on the ticket. You said it yourself. We're talking about um, fears, marketing, you know, some influence by the Bernie Sanders campaign, who's a democratic socialist. So, um, but the theme of socialism being an important one in this, pre- this the election we just had. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, that's really interesting what you say too, how that, um, uh, that message of anti-socialism resonates with uh, Latino Protestants, at least in parts of Texas, for example. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know. I know also people in California, Latino Protestants, and you know, even you know, Chicanos, uh, and even some first-generation Mexicans that uh, that really parroted that message. You know, they they bought into that, and so. Um, it may have not been, a, you know, it wasn't a majority, but that message is present there as well. Uh, and I found it interesting that despite the fact that it was Biden-Harris, a more mm-hmm. moderate, you know. Yes. Um, ticket. More moderate ticket, that that message was still being trumpeted by some people in, you know, in that sector in the Latino Protestant sector. So, uh, and you're saying that they were, I'm sorry, just to make sure I understood you, they were against it, right? Like this idea that actually the Biden Harris ticket was somehow truly deeper down the Warren Sanders campaign. And are, are you, is that what you're saying? They, they sort of circulated that. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know if they're getting to the point of comparing, you know, the Biden Harris ticket with, you know, other potential Democratic candidates, but mm-hmm. I, I think it was more uh, just in general. Democrats are for socialism. Okay, and that's bad. I was just making yeah. sure that that's what they were saying. Yeah, so yes, that yes, yes, so yes. that is present in California too. That's very yeah. Good. There is a, there there was a sector that was that was arguing for that, and and the ones that that were in my orbit at least tended to be Latino Protestants. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so. Um, are there any uh, adjustments that you would make to how things have been covered in the aftermath election? People seem to be really running with the they're not a monolith, that 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 much we're clear about. And also, I think some of the now the front-loaded stories are, um, the front-page news stories about the Latinx vote are, wow, a lot of them went for Trump. Is this, do you think, good coverage of this last election cycle? Yeah, well, so everyone, as you said, everyone seems to agree Latinos are not a monolith, so that that tends to be one of the big stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm glad that that story is is out. I'm glad that that story is being 
promoted. Um, a part of me is concerned that that's, you know, is that really the, the biggest story? Is that the biggest takeaway? You know, is that like the aha moment? You know, Latinos are not a monolith. When we're talking about millions of people, um, did we expect them to be a monolith? But um, the two big stories that I'm that I'm seeing, or or I don't even I don't want to call them stories. The two big narratives that I'm seeing are, on the one hand, uh, what you what you already named as well. Oh wow, some Latinos voted for Trump, and um, a growing number of them. So so not just that some voted for him, but a growing number of them, mm-hmm. you know, voted for Trump. So there's that that story, which is sort of, um, I think it's being framed as like a surprise, right? And mm-hmm. and then the other story, or uh, sorry, the other big narrative that's coming through is um, the swell of Latino voters actually pushed some states to become blue, or or at, or at least help sustain helped sustain the blue vote mm-hmm. uh, in some states. So there's almost these, um, or not almost, there are these two diverging narratives that are being hailed by the media as sort of the, the main stories of the Latino vote. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I mean, do you think, have you been seeing that? Is that something that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think people and I think that that is because it's overly guided by the idea that people should be voting according to race and according to immigration like those themes so if you believe that you know the democrat like democrats have good messaging around multi-ethnic multi-racial democracy and you think that they also have better versus worse rhetoric around immigration. And you take those to be the right concerns for Latinx voters, then yeah, the surprise is, well, actually, it's not that it's not as important, right? Like, so that could be the reporting. The reporting premises, the assumptions. Does that make sense? So the mm-hmm. reporting is happening in the wake of those assumptions. Yes. And so accordingly, a surprising number of people in Texas have voted for Trump. Apparently, they're not that offended by the immigration rhetoric, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or apparently, they don't over-identify or they don't identify with it, right? They don't make, a, they don't invest that much in it. Um, but there's also another missing narrative or a less, I think, researched narrative, less obvious now, which is something you and I talked about. So I want to give you credit for toplining this, but actually... Latinx voters played a huge role in some key uh, swing state election uh, voting blocks. And so I think if you don't start with the, wow, for sure, Latinx voters are going to be offended by Trump's immigration rhetoric and vote, you know, with the multi-ethnic party. If you don't start with that, then you won't overemphasize where that's not true. And you might get a more holistic picture to say, or to look at all the ways that Latinx voters made a big difference for Biden and Harris. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that, um, that these, as you've named them, these assumptions 
are what cause these, I think, uh, news outlets to present these as surprising, you know, findings <laughs> as, you know, new trends. Um, and for example, I would, uh, I would push back on the idea that this is a new trend. Um, I think we can talk about that there, there was this growing edge of Trump support. I, I think that we can maybe spend a minute or two if possible on that, but I, but, but I don't necessarily think that that is kind of the, the reigning um, move or like the reigning wave of the Latino vote. Um, because I do think that, not just think, but based on what I've, what I've read and what I've seen that there has consistently been this, um, uh, this Latino Republican vote. Like that's, that's been around now for several decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not a new thing. Right. And that's existed. And so it's almost like every election cycle, it gets discovered anew and framed as like this, you know, this new, um, you know, this new trend. So that, so that's not a new trend. But I think the other thing that you named and that you described is in these swing states, that uh, that Latinos played a critical role mm -hmm. in in moving those states and maintaining them blue. And I think that, well, to borrow from someone else, um, to quote um, Juan Gonzalez, he says, the key narrative of this election is not whether there was a small shift in the percentage of Latinx voters in some areas of the country turning toward Trump, Right. Main story is that in an election which saw historic turnout, people of color and especially Latinos had an unprecedented increase in voting. And, and he goes on to say how, you know, that increase in voting helped push the the vote in a certain direction, most uh, blue. But within all that, within those numbers, I, I think if I may add another piece which is I think we have to credit the, 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 the local organizers, the people that were mm -hmm. on the ground and you know, getting out the Latino vote because you know, we can talk a lot about you know, how people vote and you know, why they vote, but I think that to recognize that there are folks putting in work to mobilize people to get them to register to vote, to encourage them to actually vote, you know, show up at the polls or send in um, your mail-in ballots or whatever it may be. I mean, there are folks laboring and that I think, so in my opinion, that's the, that's the story of the Latino vote, that there were folks grassroots, you know, at the grassroots organizing and mobilizing folks. That I think is really, and through that, yeah, you're going to get some on, on both sides. You know, I think there were people that really got energized by Trump. But overall, the rise of the Latino vote was huge, was huge. And we wouldn't have had, and that's what um, Gonzalez goes on to point out. He says, 64% um, of the 32 million eligible Latinx voters, are that, that's who voted. And so while in previous election cycles, the turnout had been routinely below 50%. And this is from an interview that mm -hmm. was done on, on uh, Democracy Now! Okay. That I'm quoting. 
Cool. So that's a huge jump. And the last thing I'll say about that, in raw numbers, it was 8 million more Latinos voted this year than in 2016. Wow. That's amazing. And that is an unqualified win. I mean, I think voter participation is huge. And I would hate it to have seen Latinx communities sit this one out. So I love that. I'm, I'm with you on celebrating that. I, I think one thing that I think is, is a little bit uh, I regret is this sense of the, this, the accountability of racialized voting groups to other racialized voting groups. So I see some pressure, like I'm looking at an Axios article um, that is talking about how Biden needs Latinx support in key battleground states. And um, there's this sort of narrative where, and it's not super, super obvious in, in press write-ups where it's like, what does, what do various ethnic groups owe to each other, which I think is more of the same idea that like people should be voting their ethnicity. And it's clear that ethnic group, people who are voting their ethnicities should be voting Democrat. And so it's a like a point of contention. Like what do these like constituencies owe each other? But I think, um, I, I think that can be very misguided because I think our electorate, you're, you're talking about grassroots organizing. Our electorate is such a vast expanse that I don't, ha I don't see that conversation continuously carried on except for every four years. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So every four years, it's like everybody, all ethnic, all non-white voting groups owe each other like to vote for Democrats. Does that make sense? But at all other points, it, there are very other, very few other times um, in public conversation, are you seeing real, um, real exchange around like, what does it mean, for instance, for different kinds of groups to mobilize for each other? I think I started to see some of this and I thought this was good around like support for um, attention to police brutality. And that felt holistic in the sense that that didn't feel um, like just convenient for the sake of an election. Does that make sense? Like now we all owe each other to fall in line, to get information. Instead, it felt like that was a true um, point of um, a crisis at which certain groups are reaching out to other groups and saying like, we totally need your support. You need to show up to this conversation. And that felt to me to be the right setting and the right spirit for like this idea of reciprocity. I would just like to see it happen at other points in time. Does that make sense? I would like to see yeah. more of that logic and see pressure on the political system put that way. Mm -hmm. Instead of just like, instead of, I think what is less effective, which is pressure on each other at the point of crisis in the political system. Does this mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I understand what you're saying that, um, and, and one of the things I appreciate of what you're saying, uh, I really, I, something I find super important in what you're saying is, um, this idea that it would be ongoing. Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, you know, I think what you're describing 
I think a great case study in that from what I've been um, reading and hearing is Arizona, mm-hmm. um, because there the mobilization had been happening for a while. Uh, yes, and, that is absolutely true. Yeah. And so, you know, folks were coming together. Uh, the SB 1070 uh, situation that that took place really was a force in gathering people um, around the whole show me your papers law. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. um, and so that, was- that that energized folks. Yeah, I think deeper coalition and you, you're the, you actually have done a beautiful job bringing us this both, bringing this up both times. It rings more true. It rings better in good faith when it's coming from um, people within their communities who are reaching out more consistently. Anyway, that was a a, sort of a softer point. I, I, nothing I want to drill down into further. I, I want to just kind of move us forward into what I consider the heart of our conversation, which is because we're both uh, sociologists of religion, which is reporting out of Public Religion Research Institute um, uh, on exit polling for Latinx voters, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the top line that I would put for people who are working in our fields, which is religion is the major factor that determined support for either Biden or Trump in this last election, which is awesome because I want to read you a couple of lines. There are not significant gender or age divides among Hispanic Americans when it comes to support for Trump. Um, There are not significant divisions between the religious groups by age or education, but instead it's just religious affiliation, which is the major distinction between Hispanic groups that supported either Trump or Biden. And here's the here's what PRI reports. A majority of Hispanic Protestants not only voted for Trump, but approve of Trump's job in office at 57%, his performance within the with the economy at 58%. So they have high marks for Trump in office yeah. versus Hispanic Catholics and unaffiliated uh, voters who only approved of his job in office at 27% and 16% respectively. Hispanic Protestants, they write, are also more likely to approve of how Trump has dealt with racial justice protests than are Hispanic Catholics or those who are religiously unaffiliated. Now, here's something interesting. Even Hispanic Protestants only think that, only, only actually approve of the job that he's done addressing racial justice protests at 45%. So it's not overwhelming. You know, they don't overwhelmingly think he's done a great job there. But when you compare that with Hispanic Catholics and unaffiliated, that drops to 30% and 11%. So it's a very clear story. It's rare that we get something so top-lined for religion, but as a sociologist of religion, for and I know I'm talking to a fellow sociology of religion, for religion to be the major factor that determined whether a Hispanic voter went for Trump or Biden, I think is, is just a major outcome here. How do you read these numbers is what I want to ask you. Yes. And that, you know, owning that we're not surprised, right? We, we 
I think ahead of the election, we said this, we, we expect Latinx voters to show up the way they have been showing up. We thought about 30% of them would go for Trump. It, a little more went than we thought. But for this to be a predominantly religious story, I want to hear from you. What does this make you think? What does this pull up for you? How would you explain it? Yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, I mean, when I saw this this article, this write-up, you know, it brought up a couple of thoughts in terms of what's going on within these communities, within these populations. And a couple of things came to mind for me. Um, one thought that came to mind uh, is leadership and the role of leaders within these communities in sort of, you know, communicating certain messages to their constituencies to, uh, or even if we're talking specifically about pastors and ministers, mm -hmm. and, and I guess we could also say evangelists, right, in, in, in mm -hmm. Protestant evangelical Pentecostal communities. The types of messages that, that folks in these communities are getting, mm -hmm. I think are much, uh, you know, often, not always, I, there are some exceptions, which we'll get to, but are often much more compatible with, uh, with, uh, with re Republican positions. And even, and even I would say in some cases are signaling towards Trump. Mm -hmm. um, even directly, not even signaling. I mean, signaling sounds like indirect. Like in some cases, there are leaders out there that are wholeheartedly endorsing Trump. Yeah. Within these communities. Uh-huh. Right. And what so this is my observation. One of my observations, and and you know, folks can correct me on that. I've I've been trying to see if folks can um would want to engage this specific question. Almost, almost doing like a public ethnography or, or you know, a public survey. Like, does anyone want to contribute to this? I don't know. But my question is this for the Protestant evangelical Pentecostal uh, well, community, mm -hmm. yeah, or or population, because they're okay. they're different communities. But I see a lot of leaders that have endorsed Trump, or that in the very least offer a more kind of apolitical stance, like let's just, mm -hmm. let's just pray for whoever's in office, pray for our leaders, you know, but I'm not hearing a more progressive voice from within these communities. Now I do, in the main line, I do hear them. I do, I, I do know some leaders from mainline Latinx churches, Protestant churches. Mm -hmm. We can talk about Catholics in a moment as well, but in the Protestant sector, in the main line, I do hear the progressive voices present, but not in the evangelical Pentecostal, which are the larger share of that population. Right. And so my sense is that they're getting, they're getting these voices from the top that are either very sympathetic towards Trump or or highly, you know, highly motivated towards Trump. Or they're getting these real kind of neutral messages that kind of leave them open to, well, I guess Trump is okay. If I should pray for any leader, then then you know Trump is fine as well. 
you know, the, <laughs> right. Right. So right. The, other, the other side isn't there. The, I don't, I'm not seeing the other side, Oh, except for some, you know, just for, you know, there are some, and I can even point to a few uh, emerging movements that have been doing a kind uh-huh. of a good job of embodying a more kind of justice focused uh, agenda. Right. Um, I think of like some folks that I know in Southern California, the Matthew 25 network, for example. Alexa Salvatierra, right? Yes, yes. Alexia, yes. Alexia. I Alexia, said Alexia, Alexia Salvatierra, yes. So some of that work there is much more justice oriented. And I would, I would say even having an acknowledgement of structural injustice but you know that seems so Californian to me, and you're from California, right? I am. So, and and having gotten to know Alexia Salvatierra a little bit, you know, as a Texan, I I have a hard time imagining that same discourse in Texas churches. Hmm. Like, and, and she, so Matthew Twenty Five is an is an organization of evangelical leaders who are, I mean, I I don't want to do injustice to the movement, but they are they are really focused on immigration justice. Yes. You know, and so, and, and from an evangelical biblical, biblical point of view. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that you're pointing up that, you know, well, one reason I hear you say that um, conservative or like that Hispanic Protestants voted for Trump is because some of their leaders actually, you know, actually co-signed and advocated for Trump support, but they didn't have really leaders who were doing the opposite, right? Which is problematizing Trump or advocating support for Biden, right? Yes. But but can I ask you something? Do you think that there were Catholic leaders out there who were um, speaking against Trump and pro-Biden? And I should put into the frame Biden himself as a Catholic, right? So- was this, um, is, is explaining Catholic support for Biden, you know, is it, does, do you think there's a symmetry where the leaders were speaking against Trump and pro-Biden and Biden got a, an actual beating, being a Catholic bump? What do you think? Yeah. Um, well, I think we have to acknowledge that even in, in the Catholic church and among Catholic Latinos there, there is a divide there as well. I think it's more balanced, I would say. And, but, but even your question, I think is very relevant to this very day. I've been seeing, <laughs> news, you know, sort of these, these stories crossing my social media feeds, um, you know, discussion of, um, you know, U.S. Catholic bishops in response to, to Biden, you know, so that's that's a big conversation going on right now. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. And even specifically, um, Los Angeles Archbishop uh, Jose Gomez. Um, there's a lot of critique being lobbed at him right now. Really? Um, yeah, because of uh, his you know stance towards uh, Joe Biden, particularly critiquing his position on abortion. Yes. Um, yeah. I saw this, um, I saw like a sort of the attempt, the already early attempts um, by various, I don't know how to describe them, but you said this is from a leader in Los Angeles, various Catholic leaders attempting to call Biden to account, now President-elect Joe Biden, 
to account for his sort of weak to missing stance in their mind on the on the evils right of abortion yes it's it's very interesting i think as a scholar of religion i'm looking at this i'm so i'm so amazed at the dimensions right because yes the the catholic you know pro-life you know we saw that become very important in the narratives around amy coney barrett right like long-term catholic pro-life ethic right especially anti-abortion um so it was really interesting to see in some senses i suspect that um biden's catholicity helped to divide the pro-life vote does that make sense when you look at vis-a-vis hillary right the hillary because there were i'm sure that there were catholics who went for biden who might not have gone for a candidate that was strictly pro-choice. Does that make sense? In some ways, okay, I'm trying to land the statement correctly. When you look at 2016, you see uh, the Trump campaign, I think, savvily focusing in on the the pro-life agenda and making a deal with conservative uh, voters. They will appoint pro-life conservative Supreme Court judges if they will support Trump, right? Yes. And Hillary could not offer uh, very much to counter that, right? She, at this point, remember, um, friend, she would, Jonathan, she would not even say safe, legal, and rare, right? So they left that whole territory out there. Um, And then sure enough, you get this Amy Coney Barrett confirmation you got, Brett Kavanaugh, now, I think it's very interesting. I think maybe Biden's Catholicity helped to break up that that dynamic mm-hmm. and break up the pro-life vote, which you got to give it to the DNC. I mean, as an operation was yeah. effective if that's how it worked. What do you think? Yeah, I, t- I tend to agree with that. I, I do think that that he broke up or his, uh, you know, Biden-Harris, I, I do think broke up that vote. Um, I, I think that there are um, Catholics that would identify as pro-life that did vote for Biden. For Biden, yes. Um, I don't see that openness as much uh, among Latino Protestants, um, but I do mm-hmm. see, um, particularly, I think when you start to couple these issues together. So when you know, when I think when people are able to. Um, think of other pro-life issues such as, hey, children in cages, you know, that's a pro-life issue, um, you know, if we want to be consistent. So so I think that, you know, if we go back to the PRRI uh, mm-hmm. findings, you know, when we look at these other issues of, you know, building the wall, um, passing a law to prevent refugees from entering the U.S., we, you know, we see that uh, Hispanic Catholics, as, as labeled in the survey, um, they are um, more more progressive than than Latino Protestants on these issues. Mm. Um, in some cases, by you know, fifteen close to like fifteen percentage points. And so, and actually, they tend to 
Hispanic Catholics tend to be very closely aligned with the general population, Latino population. Yeah, their their mm -hmm. positions tend to look, you know, really closely aligned with, and and part of that is just a numbers game, you know, the proportion of the population. Um, but still, you know, it's Protestants are a growing population, but I think we have the the counterbalance of the nuns, the non-religious, which are which tend to go on the other side of not only Protestants, but also of Catholics, you know, in terms of their their proportions of voting for these justice related issues. So going back to your, your question, I mean, I think the way I see it is when folks start to align several issues as pro-life, mm -hmm. I think that that helps to conceptualize, you know, okay, I want to be consistently pro-life. Um, and these are life issues. Right, these these justice issues are life issues. You know, even um, how we respond to the pandemic, like that's a life issue. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I also I want to point out a couple of things. Number one, that family, the the children in cages was was not only probably the just a terrible moral scandal. I mean, that was. Just the, to my mind, one of the absolute nadirs of the Trump presidency, but um, one of the nadir. I think maybe you can only have one. But anyway, um, that would be in the running for the worst, the worst of the worst of what we saw from the Trump presidency. But and it's ongoing too, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's yes, we're going to need to put people are going to want to need to put pressure on Biden Harris to make a to make a real some real con changes in our border. And immigration policies. I um, I want to point out that that was a that was also the low point for Hispanic Protestant, actually Protestant in general support for Trump. Um, their approval, they absolutely everybody was revolted by children in cages. Is something I want to point up, and I think it was a real weak spot in. Um, in his relationship with evangelicals and Protestants. Um, and I think that's because they have such a, the way that I interpret it is they have a, such a strong um, idea around family values, which is where, by the way, they're, I'm not saying they actually have a strong ethics for family values, but strong set of ideas mm. around family values. Okay. And um, that's kind of where I think their, their aversion, their antipathy to, to pro-choice legislation is. I mean, that's, I think they're really dedicated to pro-life slash the baby is a, is a, is a sacred figure within a family system, mm -hmm. which is also sacred. And then I would just point out that, um, that children in cages does not fit well within that sort of romanticized family ima imaginary. So mm -hmm. actually, you know, the, the Trump campaign or the Trump presidency was was resilient, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It you know Trump once said I could shoot someone in the middle of did he say Fifth Avenue, and my my supporters wouldn't. No one would really care. The idea that he had like just limitless goodwill, limitless latitude. Actually, the real. Um, breaking point for a lot of people was the the period of children in cages and 
and the optics of that. That was a real sore point. Okay, so I want to tell, I want to get through a few things out there, even as we're running out of time, because I, I have, I hear, I heard your answer as, you know, why did Hispanic Protestants and why do Hispanic Catholics go for such different, why did, why did it organize according to religion? I heard your answer as leadership. Is there anything else you want to add before I give you my uh, theory? Oh, yeah. Um Leadership, I, I and I also think, um, and I would love to hear your answer on this. I also think theology matters. Oh, good. No, say more. I can't cut you off at theology. Yeah, well, teaching theology doctrine. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, Catholic social teaching has a stronger foundation, lending itself to an awareness of structural injustices, for example. Yes. And and I think that element is still ongoing and present. So beautifully um, said, yes. Yeah, within uh, within Catholic communities. Um, not all. I mean, there, there, there are streams within Catholicism that kind of mirror um, evangelicalism and Pentecostalism in, in a variety of ways. You know, I'm thinking of the work of... Um, uh, Alicia Reyes Barrientes, for example, um, she's done work around, um, I, I believe she uses the label um, evangelical Catholics, Latinx evangelical Catholics. Oh, cool. For example. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll point to her work if folks want to read, you know, about that. This is um, academic articles that she's published, or there's one in particular that I'm thinking of that I've read that she's published uh, around this question. So, um, so yeah, I think there, th that population does exist, but um, I think that this tradition of Catholic social teaching that, um, that has been present, yeah, I think there's this awareness of social justice that can be built in to the tradition into the, uh, that has been built in and can be expressed in a variety of ways. Um, I think that within the more evangelical leaning uh, traditions in the, in the Latinx community. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some theologies present there that, um, that, that can lead people in other directions, like very individualistic uh, in some cases, again, not all, but you know, there are some key leaders, you know, I think views of salvation as very, um, uh, individual focused, uh, you know, mm -hmm. where everything, everything comes down to um, what did the person choose? And I think, I, I think people even look at immigration that way. So they'll look at, you know, I think people that are, that have this very individualistic focus on spirituality uh, will then mm -hmm. look at an issue like immigration and say, well, you know, this is about people that choose to come. You know. Yeah, that's, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, it's making me think of conversionism, right? Like the idea that the Wesleyan idea that you have to have like a conversion experience, a born again experience, which happens on an individual level. And if it's really Wesleyan, it's also effective, right? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And actually I'm a little jealous. I want to convince, I want to um, admit to some Protestant jealousy i was raised pentecostal so i'm a protestant and jealousy of catholic liberation theology 
Um, and I think the role it's played in how, especially, and how, especially voters in California, Latinx voters in California showed up. And I, I want to point back to what I said about identity politics, because I think I said something like, oh, I don't, I don't know, you know, if, if last time I said, if Latinx voters have been voting for, you know, since Nixon, if there have been 30 something percent of them who have been voting for Republican candidates, I expect that to continue. And I don't think identity politics will change that, you know, the, the predominance of the identity politics um, narratives around, you know, voting your ethnic identity, right? But what I'm seeing and what you're pointing to is actually, you know, why is this a religion story? Well, actually in California, especially, although not just in California, there's this like really vibrant, well-established tradition of Catholic social teaching around liberation theology and its politics, very different from what I'll name as my answer in a minute, patriarchal theology. Mm. And, um, and, and that of course grew up together with farm worker movement in California. So it's not just a theological story. Yes. You know, it, it had also cultural counterparts that it was in affinity with. Mm-hmm. But so I see real theological foundations for the difference in this voting pattern and, and good foundations of difference. Does that make sense? Like, yes, Catholic social teaching. This is a shout out to all my colleagues who are working in California in Catholic schools. Um, okay. So my answer, um, I, I, the answer to why I think Hispanic Protestants went for Trump just like it is I want to I want to position my answer in relationship to two books okay one Robbie Jones is white too long because mm. I think this is a spoiler does that make sense I do not think you can uh, while I okay so white too long and I want to talk about Kristen Cobes Dumais um Jesus and John Wayne okay okay so the reason why I want to talk to about Robbie Jones is white too long. Last time we were together, I complained about that what I called then the whitewashing of evangelicalism. And I said also the Southern Baptistification of, of Protestantism in mm-hmm. these frames, right? So of evangelicalism. So when Robbie Jones is saying, look, Protestants, evangelicals are voting for whiteness when they vote for Trump right? That's the, that's the theory, right? They Mm -hmm. see white Christianity is in decline. Um, They see that whites are no longer going to be the predominant uh, in some areas. They're not holding on to their cultural dominance or sometimes even their numerical dominance. Robbie Jones in white too long is saying, look, and this is their last dying grasp at political power. They voted for Trump because they were voting for their own whiteness. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, at the time, yeah, last time we talked, I said, you know, it, it's, I think Southern Baptists, I think the last I read are 3% white. I can get where Robbie Jones is coming from on that score. But you just pointed up that actually a lot of Pentecostal leaders, white and otherwise, went for um, 
Pentecostal slash charismatic, they actively, avidly, rhetorically lent their like their support to Trump, and they are often not white. And Pentecostalism is not accurately described as white, neither in culture nor in demographics. So I just want to point up that when I am thinking about Hispanic Protestants who went for Trump, I am thinking of a lot of multicultural churches. Yes. And I would say this this bears out to my mind as somewhat of a spoiler and it's hard to interpret it when you're committed to a black and black like black and white frames or like multicultural and white frames of mm-hmm. interpreting this election. Last time you and I talked about um, toxic masculinity and machismo as potentially a reason why a lot of Latinx men, Latino men, voted for Trump. So the idea here would be Trump is a toxically masculine figure. Mm-hmm. And these these guys are also toxic masculinists. And so they are voting for themselves. They're not voting for whiteness. They're voting for toxic masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. And I I think that that is a credible interpretation. I wouldn't say we were wrong, nor would I say our our beloved uh, colleague Nini Waraboko, who helped us think in some of these directions, was wrong. Um, but I want to add in another dimension, which is, and I'm going to write a whole piece about this for Marginalia, but I'll spoiler a little bit of it here. When Kristen Cope's Dumaze's Jesus and John Wayne talks about the whiteness of cowboy culture, I think it too it readily assumes the whiteness of cowboy culture. Mm-hmm. In that Texas is a very hybrid set of cultures around both. Like Tejano is an actual culture, right? You've got, you've got, yes, you've got Anglo Texans. You've got Mexican people living in Texas. You've also got a Tejano culture that really hybridizes these spaces and cultures. Yes, is a good example. I don't want to say whiteness completely disappears or doesn't, you know, that we don't still also have problems of structural racism around whiteness. But I think that that would be a very poor lens for borderland culture. And I want to point to that there is a cowboy ethic in Texas Hmm. that is not super correctly understood as white. And I want to point out to you as my friend that several of my cousins are cowboy hat wearing my, my, my Hispanic cousins are cowboy hat, cowboy boot wearing, and they have land. One of my cousins has 750 acres of land south of San Antonio. And that land has like actual rattlesnakes, actual cows, wild boars. And what I'm trying to say is not only is this a cowboyism of the, like John Wayne is an actor and that's a myth. This is a, an active and live culture and it has its own mythologies and whiteness would be a collapsing of these themes. So I want to close out with that article that I shared earlier, a quote, um, because that article, Trump did not win the Latino vote in Texas. He won the Tejano vote by Jack Herrera and Politico. When he's trying to figure out why is it that some of these groups in South, South Texas, you know, why they go to for Trump? You know, he says, basically, they're a lot more conservative than you think they are. These, these South Texaners, uh, they says um, on weekends, um, and he's talking about the town, I think of Zapata, 
the town empties out as people head into ranch into the ranch land to hunt and nearly everyone is proudly gun-toting and god-fearing in the deeply catholic county support for abortion is practically non-existent while support for law enforcement the military and even border patrol is rock solid and i just want to point out that and that he's you know Herrera is talking there about Catholics in southern in the deep parts of South Texas, but I I see this in Protestant circles too, mm-hmm. and and I so more soon I'll 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 send you my marginalia piece. But thinking about you know are yes some versions of cowboy co- culture I suppose are toxically masculine are all max are all masculinities toxic, and if we're talking about a long standing cowboy culture here um and we're literally talking about things like hunting right and guns used for hunting um are we just dealing with i would say we're dealing with a cultural uh a set of cultural values that just don't don't show up super well in national conversation mm-hmm. and that's why i'm so glad we're in the work that we do because as we close this podcast I got to tell you, I'm more interested in this rather than less. Does that make sense? I'm more interested yeah. in these com- the complexity of these regional cultures than I am. Than I, this doesn't explain away anything. I want to know more. Yeah. And if I can add something to what you said. Yeah, there, of course. At the end, which is that uh, I think that the um, in addition to to what you to the context that you've described, I think the fact that we're naming groups that do that that see themselves as not being fully recognized mm-hmm. in society, and then here here comes along a candidate that seems to recognize them. At least they think, right? They think they're being yeah. recognized. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If I were to get at Trump, I would say sensibilities. You know, one of the things that Kristen Coves Dumay says is, "Look, I mean, this masculine, this kind of masculinity," and she kind of makes Trump's just the latest version. Yeah. You know, it's been around a long time in American culture. Who doesn't <laughs> watch The Sopranos? Like, does that make sense? Like these romantic, yeah, flawed masculine figures, but they've mm-hmm. been with us for a long time. And yeah, I think people felt Trump, there was some sort of affinity there. Yeah. What do you, do, I hope you buy that. If I can sell it to you, I can sell it to, that gives me confidence to to go with it elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that there's an affinity there. I, I think that, that folks, uh, well, specifically men, a lot of um, uh, men of color, specifically in this case, Latino men, um, identify with that, um, with the persona that he is uh, projecting. Mm-hmm. And, um, which is interesting to me because there are many aspects of his person that just don't seem to fit this kind of idea of a noble kind of gentleman um, and yet, because some of those aspects may fit more this um, th- within particular Christian traditions, there's this, you know these ideas, these images of uh, kind of this re- reformed masculinity. You know, we might say. I think that's yeah. uh, you know borrowing from uh, uh, Ed Flores. You know, um, and yet. <clears throat> there's enough there of what he's saying that folks folks gravitate, or specifically men, you know, gravitate towards um, these elements, these motifs of masculinity that he's that he's you know putting forth 
despite the fact that there are these other aspects, which I'm like, you know, those, you really want those things like that, you know, so, Uh uh but even those things, even those things um, to refer refer back to referring back to our, our colleague, uh, Nimi Wari Boko, you know, you know, folks living vicariously. So there's, you know, there's aspects that they want to be like, you know, here and now, and then there's other aspects that they want to be like, even though they're not going to actually live into them, but it's like living vicariously. Yes. I mean, just so that people who didn't maybe listen to the first one don't feel left out on the second one. The idea we're dealing with here is an idea floated by a friend of ours, Dr. Nimi Waraboko, who's a faculty colleague of Jonathan's at BU. The idea that actually it's sort of repressed masculinity, finding its like the repressed toxic masculine, finding its vociferous voice, right? In Trump, so that maybe people don't all want to cheat on their wives. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I don't know, have Atlantic City yeah. gambling sprees or something, but they they get to live vicariously through someone like Trump who, you know, who goes out there and and lives that unlived aspect of masculinity for all, for all those other guys who are um as you said reformed masculine yeah. types well um it's over i know for me, for me it's over <laughs> on that note we'll go ahead and finish off our conversation which i know could continue in a variety of different directions so i think we will have to continue on but for now Erica, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you to all that have joined us in listening in on this conversation. We hope it will spark some ongoing dialogue. Jonathan, it's been an amazing pleasure to be in conversation again. And I'm looking forward to uh, our next opportunity to discuss uh, the life of the nation and the role of uh, Latinx religion uh, in it. Take care. Take care. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.